We're going to be right now in our next text of Scripture, moving through 1 Kings, if you'll turn there. And I think that on the publication there, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, where are you going, going? It's getting tough. 1 Kings chapter 12, we'll see how much of it we can carve up and serve. At the conclusion of the teaching, we do have one more worship song, so the band will come up. And at the conclusion of that, I'm going to ask Rivers to come up and give the benediction. That's simply where we knit everything together in prayer, honoring the Lord for our time together. And then I will just be scooching over to the door to meet and greet. It never happens, so I'm like the Maytag repairman when I go over there, and that's awesome because it means you guys are doing what you need to do. But that's where I'll be for a moment. And uh, thanks for preparing your hearts for that. As well, as a reminder, we do pay tribute to the Lord in what is our act of worship and the rendering of tithes and of offerings. There are two baskets up here on each side of the steps and over there in Agape Box, and that's where you can render in obedience and in devotion your gifts and tithes and offerings at the conclusion of the service. Let's scooch back here. And uh, in finding my place, making sure I don't send paperwork out in your lap, I do want to anchor this chapter in the book of James. There are other things to look at, too. We'll see if we have time. But in the book of James, a very practical book, and an in-your-face book, uh, how appropriate to address these two men who are on the scene right now in real time. There is a spiritual turnaround. There is indeed within the hearts of these men spiritual challenges. It's going to affect their effectiveness. There is as a nation a great split that's going to happen because as we say farewell to Solomon, then the legacy of his kingdom is facing a judgment that has been pending and now moves into full force. The Lord always has something pending, and that means that he works in a way in which even culture will be challenged by what is their disobedience to a God who has given himself for them and tolerates for a season the disregard that very often is shown. It's not just exclusive in the United States. It happens worldwide. When we look back at this, this is what you would call a Middle Eastern culture demise. In Israel in particular, God's people, they had challenges following faithfully the precepts and commands of God. But in James, I'm picking this verse up in chapter 4, which I think is a great highlight for where we will be. And I'm going to actually scooch up to verse 4 because I, I want to grab something there. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In David's time, he was at war with the enemies of God. In Solomon's time, he befriended too many people within his domain, within his 
authority and it became a mess culturally and spiritually, corruptingly. The people of God drifted from the ways of the Lord. So when you see that, both within the church and when you see it, both in officials that are taking positions of power, be mindful that God is gracious for a season and then there is a judgment. Notice what it continues to say here. But he gives grace. Why? Because here's what happens in verse 5. Do you think that the Spirit, or the Scriptures, says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, or jealously. And that means over all creation, and in particular in the people that God loves and died for, he is provoked First it says he's gracious, but then it says, therefore, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God. Jeroboam and Rehoboam will not have attended to this instruction. And you might cleverly say, well, it's in the New Testament. How could they have? Well, because they had that command given to them. In the Old Testament, under the law, you shall have no other gods before me. God was jealous, protective. He was to be revered. He was to be followed. And so as this continues, it says that there is one, and that one, obviously, that we are to resist, not God. We're to obey him. We're to humble ourselves before him. We're to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, verse 8. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so these two guys represent a double-mindedness. God's bringing them into an elected position, meaning he's showing an election of them. They're not getting voted in. He's putting them in, but they're double-minded. And as a result, Israel, all of Israel as a nation, will be plunged into both separation and ultimately into segregation from God because of that. So when you see that, it's very contemporary. It very much links itself to those days, which we can see presently in our days. Let's pick up this teaching today. We'll be in, obviously, all of 12. I'm going to try to do that. While I'm there, though, let me remind you of last week. Who would have known Jeroboam? Solomon right now realizes that his time is up. At this point in Scripture, going back to verse 37, very likely he's about a 57, 58-year-old, maybe tops at 60, but he's not in his prime. Very likely he will not live up to the full age of David, which was 70 years of age, based on where he governed in Hebron and ultimately where he finished his kingship up in Jerusalem and Solomon, we know, probably because of where he was in the lineage of David's children, not the eldest, the last, 
as far as we know, at least with Bathsheba, that he probably started off his authority as king at about mid-20s, young 20s, mid-20s. And the reason that that's important is that time was shorter for him. What could he have done in the time had it been given to him as it had been given to his father? The ripe old age of 70. And by the way, the scriptures in Psalm um, 95 tell us that in verse 10, 70 years has been given to us. 80 if due by strength, those beyond 80, real strength. The question is, in the strength that Solomon had at the time that he had such authority, what would he have done differently had he known that his decisions ultimately led to a corruption of the people and ultimately to division in the land? That's a question probably all of us need to say, what would I do differently, having the knowledge of both the influence that I carry right now and the position that I have, and ultimately the influence that we have as a church in the position that our government is going. What influence do we have? Well, there's much. One, through prayer, asking God to intercede, and through actually action, what it is we're willing to do. Do we tolerate it, or do we find it intolerable? Do we work ourselves up? into rebellious destruction or do we work ourselves down into humble prayer and petitions how much god desires to answer the prayers of his people who seek his face that's what james was basically saying he's in our face saying humility is the key and prayer is the means by which in humbling yourself things will change and can change because God is the one that authors change, allowances, and change. And it's a wonderful thing when that happens because we know the term that captures it is revival breaking out. And when revival breaks out, it means people have been broken and they've seen there's no other alternative that they've selected opposing God in their election but to come before him, to quit having an alliance with the devil and to have a full covenant relationship with the Lord. So in picking this up in 37, the promise that has been given to Jeroboam is rather extraordinary. He says, so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. Jeroboam's hearing words of promise. Out of nowhere, a prophet comes. Well, he came from somewhere. But to Jeroboam, what a surprising moment. He had been obviously a part of the administration of Solomon. He oversaw big things, big projects. We saw something of last week that he has with his personality, some differences that you would call sketchy, some suspicious. His name we magnified by saying it meant one who would basically become an oppressor of the people. He strove with people. We said, pay attention to those who, like him, 
have that as their default. That's really what they fall back into when God has moved them from that. In this passage, though, the promise has been given to him. What would he do if he saw how disappointed he's been in Solomon, where he now has been tagged by a prophet to receive this word? What would he do different that's going to make Israel turn back towards God and celebrate recovery, which is a term really that Israel needs right now? Not a program. They just need to turn. One represents a program in our contemporary language, but biblically it means turn back to the Lord and be saved. It could have happened under his watch. Could have happened now in Jeroboam's watch if he had heeded what this promise seems to be indicative of. What's on your heart, the desire of your heart, I will have met out. Just say so. Tell me what you want. Tell me what you need. And most of us would say, man, I'd like to be visited with that request of God, with that promise from the Lord. Well, we actually have been. We actually have been. How are we doing with it? What is the desire of our heart in which God would give us the desire of our heart, according to his promises, that actually would make a difference both in our lives, but also in the lives connected with us? Jeroboam, having received this, it says, God continuing through the prophet, and then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did then. I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. That means you got 10 pieces now. I'll give it all to you. Right now, one, Judah, not mentioned, very likely Benjamin, are to remain as the inheritance of David's. But if you exceed right now what David's doing, I will not depart from my promise to him, but I'll make something extraordinarily happen for you, even beyond your wildest dreams. And then it says in verse 30, 39, that the consequence ultimately of what Solomon has done leads David's house to be afflicted, the descendants of David, because of this, but not forever. They will be afflicted. There's going to be consequences, but it's not forever. It's a chastening that needs to take place, and it will take place. Anybody and any nation that thwarts God and chooses in that to exalt itself above God, they experience what this is basically saying. There's going to be a rendering of correction that will for a season plague that person, that country, that nation, that state. Again, some people are making politics out of global warming and all of these things. But I believe that it's simply divine warning. Things can't continue as they are, though we know things can't get better if indeed we are looking at the book of Revelation. Things have to come to a point in which you're going, can it get any worse? Well, the worst that it will get is when God calls the church up and you're not a part of it. That's going to be one of the worst that it can get. 
And so God's calling to this nation as a foreshadow, as he would call to our nation, as a present temp to warn them, to warn us, to change, to turn. Church, don't fall asleep. Even though Rich puts you to sleep, stay awake, stay alert. And this, as it closes, Solomon therefore sought to kill him. Solomon's trying in the last moment that he has to thwart this, which we'll find out is of God, because God said to Solomon he would do it. But Jeroboam arose, fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Move on to verse 41. Now the rest of the days, or the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon, it says, rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Second character to be introduced in this teaching. Jeroboam, right now, has an inheritance that he's receiving. Not as of yet, but it's within a page. Rehoboam, the successor of Solomon, one of many sons, only a few have been cited, but the one that now is given the opportunity to reign over the balance of what will be his charge, Judah. The interesting thing is right now is he's not fully aware of the calamity that he's facing off with. Solomon was. He tried to stop it with Jeroboam. Rehoboam would indicate that he's completely ignorant, and we also will find that he's very arrogant. Here's how this opens. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king, so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard it. He was still in Egypt. That's where he went. For he fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. That they sent and called him, then Jeroboam, and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father. And his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So a committee came, representing the whole of Israel. And they say, man, it was hard. Your dad did great things, but he also did it at the cost of what now has become wearisome. It's been hard. He imposed taxes on us that were extravagant and difficult that which even we could barely keep up on. So we've kind of seen how that works as well within governments, extracting what they need in order to satisfy the things that they do. And it should be for the people that they serve, but very often we find out, what? Where did that go to? So there is a contingency. There's a there's a group of ambassadors that are making an appeal to this younger man, younger than Solomon. There is a computation that he probably, at this start, is about in his early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. Not as young as Solomon, not necessarily 
one that has any experience whatsoever, even at this age. Remember, David would have taken command at about 30 plus years of age, and Rehoboam, who would have sat under his father, older, old enough to have known what you ought to say and what you not ought to say. Double negative, had no idea why I threw it in there. But he should have known better. Everybody here, by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God, should know better about what it is we do during times in which we can say it's bitter. What's coming next? What possibly could be the plague that happens next to us? Where's the next cataclysm? Where could we possibly find something that gives us a hope and an assurance that we can make it through one more voting cycle, one more whatever it is? I say this and I will interject and believing that it's over on that table, we have nonsense in Brookings right now. We have a library that's beginning to have in its shelving books that we would say should not be handled by your children. You might be aware of it. I'm not going to go into it any further. This is where we as believers are able to say that's nonsense. We're not putting up with it. We fund the library and we're not going to have pornographic material in written form or suggestions which disregard the Word of God. We're not going to be talking about those things contrary to the way that we're raising our children. We're not gender confused. We're not into dysphoria, which may be, in fact, psychologically a real dilemma, but we know the one who solves those personal dilemmas. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Lord Jesus who heals the mind, heals the body, changes everything about us. And one sin can't be, if you would, permitted to have a foothold above another. You just simply say, nope. That doesn't work. So that being said, is it over by the table? It's a petition. This is where you get to put your John Henry down on paper and say, I'm a taxpayer in this community. I'm not building up false doctrine in a place in which we should have more Bibles available. So there you go. That's my plug for what we can do. And if it takes a little bit longer to get out to sign that paper, we'll just get other papers and we'll make it an easier process. But if it's an official document, take time to be official. Take time to be an ambassador, to deliver the word of the Lord through your signature that this is not on our watch and see what God will do with that. Practice for what we need to do in the midterms. Practice for what we need to do two years from now. Practice what allows God to make perfect that which is corrupted. And so as this continues, this is the dilemma. Here's the attitude, because in Rehoboam's name were one. Jeroboam was the man who exercised strife and oppressive behavior. That's what his name means. That's what you will see. Rehoboam means wide with intentions, large with ambition, and actually to what we would say troublesome. He's got a troublesome personality. He's going to stir the pot. 
There's no humility in either one of these guys. So you may say, then why are we reading about them? Because God wants to let you know, as James was indicating, that God takes men and women with problems and he gives them a shot at having change effectual in what it is he's allowing them to do. We all get a shot. An opportunity to say, Lord, you picked me and I have no idea, but Lord, I accept this as a responsibility and in such, I humble myself before you. I'll do the best that I can in the season that you give me. And if you prolong the season that I have, because I'm actually seasoning the people beside me or representing the community as a whole, then I will be salt. The seasoning that I will be in the season that you give me is salt and I will be light. I'll do that to the best of my ability with everything that I have as an able-bodied man, woman, clear thinking, right-hearted, not resisting the spirit, obligating myself to the spirit. And so he is now being sent literally away from what is his coronation moment to handle the politics in his hour. And this is what he says to those who have come to him. King Rehoboam in verse 6 consulted with the elders who stood before his um, father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? Okay, that's good. There should be consultation with spiritual elders in your life. And no, it's not always called the pastor. There are spiritual elders in your life, and they serve as messengers of enlightenment. They pray for you and with you. They are not your God, nor even counselors, but they are older than you. They've seen things work out. They've been worked on. And so Rehoboam, correct in seeking counselors from his father's administration, it seems perfect. Wisdom, like his father in the early portions, he wants to do what's right. So that's not going to be taken away from him. The problem becomes when we gather too many counselors to ourselves because rather than living in faith that what we heard is the word of the Lord, we want somebody else's opinion, and it's generally not from an elder. It's from our contemporaries, the ones either at age or younger than us, that we want to kind of, yeah, I'm kind of the big guy on the block right now. See, when there's... Elders that we seek, both men and women, in the fellowship, what's our attitude? Humility. I want to know what it is the Lord may have from you to help me be guided correctly. So you listen. With the younger or contemporaries, guess what? They're associates. They're ones that would say, well, Glad we have the opportunity to influence you. We see things just a little bit differently than those old guys, those old gals. I mean, 
they've kind of lost the groove. Their mojo kind of settled like coffee grounds in a bad cup. We, we've got the insight. We can really make things snap, pop, and hum. And so with that, they're going to be dismissed. They spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. What good counsel is that for us that we find it within our hearts to be able to deliver with our mouths words that encourage, even if those words may be corrective in their intent, insightful beyond a person's ability to receive, what good that is for us to speak good of people. There's always something that can be said that's better than the person thinks about themselves. There's always something that can be said. Always. And how I have appreciated in my seasons where men, women, families have chosen to speak well of me, even though there could be things they could say, mm. You know, like it might be, <laughs> well, it did happen. It happened on Easter. I already shared it. But on Easter, received a call from a mom and our grandma and a granddaughter, and they were so excited to come. But when they left on Easter, as I was standing at the door, shaking hands with more people than I presumed would be at the door, Apparently, I didn't give them the best handshake or the sharpest attention. And I got in a text that burned up all my data and I said, never coming back here again. You were the rudest person I've ever met. How could you call yourself a pastor? All I was doing was shaking hands for Pete's sake. <laughs> Did I forget the handshake, the secret, you know? Um, so I do say that because, I have no idea why I said it, because things happen in which it sure would have been nice had she simply stated the good word as opposed to critique an incident in which her liability was equal to mine. Where was your hand? Where was your face? And so I remember that the last thing I did do was smile, but honestly, it was this surge and... I couldn't break from it and they were standing right by the corner, but apparently that severed all possibilities of me being anyone to ever say anything good about. Again, I probably got slammed on multimedia yap. I'm sure I got yapped. You got yapped because I got yapped. So we all ended up in the doghouse thanks to me because I can't shake hands correctly. Okay, let's move on. And so they said, we'll be your servants forever. But he rejected, notice this, the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. They're a gang. They're a cloistering of elitists. They want some power and position. That's really what's happening right now. You don't disregard the elders to make room necessarily for the youngers. You've got to have a balance. As I get older, I'll have less opportunity to be governed by the elders because we're all going somewhere pretty quickly. It's usually marked by a hole six feet deep and 
Somebody's going to be over us. But it does mean you stay in. And the other thing is this too. You don't despise the young. If you're an elder, you look at the young and the Spirit of God within them and you listen to them as if they are, in fact, eldering. See, if they have to wait to become my age for me to listen to them, guess what? I'll never listen to them. But if I accept them by the work of God in their life as mature and able to give directive through prayer and truth in the word, and their integrity is one that I would not question, even if the inexperience that they may have hasn't necessarily caught up, I can listen to them with deep regard. Paul instructed Timothy, do not let your youth be a reason for being despised. In other words, a lot of people say you're too young to be able to be doing what you're doing, but don't let them look down upon you. And the charge equally is that, so don't do anything that disappoints them. You're charged, I don't look down on you, you've been appointed, do your job, don't get discouraged by the critics. At the same time, give them no opportunity or reason for doubting you, ever. And so he's rejected the advice, perhaps the young today, do not reject the advice of your elders in the spirit. Learn to discern. Be wise in God's eyes. And so they're rejected. He said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? He's talking to his chums, his buddies. Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him saying, thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, say, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. Remember this. That's an implication of actually what his name means. Thick guy, thick-headed. Literally, there's a portion of this that's true. Big-waisted. He's egotistical. He's easily persuaded to be invoked into troublesome decisions. He wants to, in his own right, be a big man on campus. He wants to make room for his belt size. I try not to make room for my belt size. But this guy is highly persuaded because inside his heart, He's got ambitions that are exceeding what God has given to him to do. Hold what you got. Be content where you're at. That's essentially it. Rehoboam, where you're at right now is the result of what has happened in your father's kingdom. Be content where you're at. Hold the place. Don't let your ears be persuaded by those who you've been hanging around You've been counseled wisely by the elders. Listen to them. But he rejects them, listens to his buddies. And now, verse 11, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. This is, this is totally what you would call a distortion of truth. What Solomon did is he made administratively a taxation system which necessitated harder work. 
he would not have been a cruel taskmaster. He would not have permitted brutality on the workforce, but the workforce did work hard because of all of the projects that were in play. And so this is one of those classic, oh, that's what you think? Oh, that's your truth? But as a result of that, these guys are saying, now make them feel it twice as hard. What, tax them some more? They're actually implying, get out the whips. If our kingdom right now is turning into a bunch of whiners, then get out the whips and tear their flesh with it. They're actually showing hedonistic tendencies by other cultures that dealt with people that way, which is why this generation we see, not you guys, but in a sense, the contemporary generations that we're seeing, they're tolerating evil. They're tolerating sinister behavior. There's an allowance of brutality. People are killing one another and torturing one another. They're doing so both in the real sense of taking a life, wounding a life, or wounding a spirit by what they say, by what they know will be read. They're taking fiction and making it fact. It's called in culture a personal assassination. Kill them with words. And so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed. This is a meeting of the dignitaries. Come back to me the third day. They did. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. This was the early formation of the teleprompter. He's reading script. That can be great. Many famous speeches have been written and have been, if you would, orated by great men. Many as well have been sincerely penned by those who are the voice pieces of such language, and they've been awesome and historically worthy of saving. But it is interesting because usually every president has a team of speechwriters. And some, in their speechwriting, write great things because they're delivered by great presidents, great men. Others have speeches written, not necessarily delivered by, per se, great people. And the facts then become evident in what is never done and what ultimately is only language to puff up and to persuade. And so he just reiterates, he's reading the teleprompter of his young men and it's making him swell. And by golly, they're gonna hear it and change is gonna happen. Well, this is what ultimately happens. So the king did not listen to the people Verse 15, for the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember that meeting? 
you get 10 tribes. I'm going to give, for David's sake, Judah, Benjamin implied that his legacy will endure as I promised to him. And now when all Israel saw that the king, verse 16, did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. Basically, those who would be willing to have listened, to have mediated, say, not after hearing that, we're through. We're done. And that can happen. That happens as well, unfortunately, within the church. We're not going to hear any more from the Bible because the way that you emphasize teachings in the Bible show a bias that we don't agree with. We think that if God is love, then love is inclusive and not exclusive. And it covers all manner of expressed love that's identified by culture. Well, God's not going to accept that. But this is a turn of events that ultimately the Lord is permitting. And by the way, it's important to know that turn of events in your spiritual life are reasonable to present to the Lord Lord, what are you doing? And the turn of events, which usually always are in a connection in which God is working something out of one person and working something into another person, are important to both show humility in as well as perseverance through. I don't think there's anybody here that is not involved in a turn of events and you're going, why did that happen? What's happening? But the turn of events may be in the same way authored by God in order to perfect one or two or both into a compliance with what ultimately he's doing in an alliance. God never wanted the nation to be separated. But because he adjudicated fairly based on the warnings that Solomon had received, based on what he said all the way back in Deuteronomy and the law of what would happen if his people forsook him, Deuteronomy 28, all of the passages up to verse 15, blessings, 16 through the closure, cursings, would happen if there would be in their heart and ultimately expressed in their walk a decision to abandon God. All those things would come upon him, the cursings. The thing that we try to remember, though, in our time is that does that still happen today? Well, we call them corrections. That's important. That's what the Lord wants us to know. But the other thing is this. The cursing actually came upon his son, Jesus, whom we've accepted in faith, meaning that by no means can you ever say that we suffered like those guys historically for disobedience and transgressions against God personally, against fellow men, because when Jesus went to the cross, it was all imposed upon him. And he said to the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul will say, even though we sin, may it never be so on the premise of grace that we receive. In other words, we stand in the conviction and correction of the Holy Spirit and by the word of God. We're walking entirely different. Galatians tells us that we live a life that has great liberty, 
but not necessarily license. And so in this, this turn of events is to fulfill the word of preserving for David his lineage. It is also a turn of events because both of these men have shown in their hearts they're not going to do what God wants them to do. That's the bottom line. Both by name and behavior, we see that rebellion and pride is in their hearts. They're not going to do what God has given them an opportunity to do. Rehoboam, be content with what remains. Legacy. This is a fabulous place. You'll love it. Smaller group, they're awesome though. They will tend to the things that bring me glory. You love on them. You be for them what it is I've always wanted my shepherds to do. Jeroboam, you're going to be a big daddy, but it's going to take a big daddy to have you govern like a father's heart. Both of these men had promises to live out and to be actually probably picnic partners on the Sabbath if they had not transgressed personally the corrective word of the Lord. But they pretty much said, I'm going to read my teleprompter. That sounds good. I'm going to listen to those guys. They sound better. Makes me feel bigger. And as a result, the kingdom will be split, plunged into some 42 and a half different kings. And of those, only Judah will have eight kings that will be cited as doing right before the face of God. Corruption on all sides. Eight will be magnified as doing right in the sight of God. And so we're going to close there, but I would like to invite as well just a peek in Jeremiah 9, if you'd go there, or you can listen to it when I find my place. And here we go. We'll close with this. And we'll pick up where we left off today. So Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Just a beautiful conclusion to ultimately addressing the bumblings of two men. But like them, we can be what the Lord has assured us of is he's the one that takes our bumbling and stumbling and our fallings and he raises us up from the miry clay. Psalm 103, and he sets our feet upon a rock. And that's what he desires to do. He applauds us in the response to be one that accepts that from him. And he continually is in the business of taking care of our business that in a all in all, when our season is through and we've seasoned as much as we can with salt and we've been as much light as we can be, we enter in to hear his words. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
and we can thank him that we chose not the way of Rehoboam. We can thank him for not choosing the way of Jeroboam, an oppressor, a distresser, and Rehoboam, a big-for-your-britches guy that needed to continue to let out just one more belt loop because his intent all along was to do his own thing.